When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at Bethel in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Ryan North about the new book, How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Inspiring Supervillain. I mean, the title says it all. So, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, sure. My name is Ryan North, and I am a uh, writer and cartoonist. And the way I got my start in writing was kind of unusual. I uh, studied computer science in undergrad and then did a graduate degree in computational linguistics. And in the course of my grad degree, I decided to start this webcomic. And I kept the webcomic going throughout all of all of graduate school and then when i graduated i had this choice between pursuing <laughs> computational linguistics this field i've been studying getting a real job or uh doing comics on the internet for for fun and it was really easy to sort of slide into becoming a full-time cartoonist because all i had to do was fail to get a job and it's really easy to fail to get a job you just don't apply anywhere and so that was sort of my, my transition into comics. And from there, I went from doing my webcomic, which I still do. It's called Dinosaur Comics, to uh, doing comics for places like Marvel and DC and really enjoying that process. And what I love about, about comics is that it's this interplay of, of words and pictures that isn't fully explored. It's still a young medium. And... So we have a pretty good idea of what prose can do, of what a novel can do, but there's still open questions of what you can do in comics. And I find that really exciting. And did you have to get training? Um, you don't actually need a lot of training to be a comics writer. You need to read a lot of comics, of course, just like you need to, to study anything. But it's a very accessible medium. Um, it's It's pretty clear... Once you've read a comic, uh, if you want to write one, you just need to describe what people are saying and what they're doing. But there's there's obviously more to it than that. But the joy of it, the thing that makes comics special for me is that when I'm writing prose, I don't know where the words are going to land on the page because it might be read in an e-reader. I don't know how it's going to be laid out when the printer does it. But with comics, you have full control over the page. So you can you know when the reader is in the lower right-hand corner of your page and about to turn the page, and you can do these little cliffhangers or these little jokes or anything else to make it, um, to give the reader a push to, to keep reading the book. And that's something that I find really interesting. Of course, when I'm writing nonfiction, when I'm doing books like How to Invent Everything or How to Take Over the World, that is prose, and I, I lose that superpower. But it's still something that I find really interesting and enjoy exploring. And how did you start writing comics? Was it like a moment, like, ah, I need to make a comic and put it on the internet? I wish it was. I wish I had that uh, self-knowledge that some people have where they know what they want to do and they know this is the course of my life and this is what I enjoy. It wasn't like that for me. I was reading a bunch of comics and I knew I liked it, but I didn't know that comic writer was a job you can do. I was reading a lot of, of indie comics. So things where it was a single cartoonist, both writing and drawing the work. And 
not knowing that you could just be a comics writer, I tried to find a way around it, a trick, a hack. And so when I decided I wanted to do a comic, what I started doing was I took these six pieces of clip art of dinosaurs and laid it out once. And then I would reuse those same images with different words over and over and over. I'm doing that for 20 years. Comics <laughs> that layout specifically are very flexible, but it was all something that I explored sort of over time. I didn't, I never had that, that moment of recognition where I said, this is what I want to do. And I, I like that. I feel like it's the benefit of a path like that is you don't feel like you're tied into your career forever. You're not you're not stuck on a path of what you've studied. You can use the knowledge. You can use a, a master's degree in computational linguistics to go write comic books. It's I like that sense of, of freedom that that we have. And what would you say to our student listeners and also geeks and nerds? I would say you know you're not setting the course of your life. It feels like it, absolutely. And when I was graduating high school and choosing between studying English literature or studying computers, I felt like this was this big monumental choice. And by choosing to study computers, I was closing that door, that chapter, that possibility, that the, that future I might have had. And it's not the case. You can always uh, do stuff in your spare time, start a webcomic while you're in undergrad. Like there's there's room to master something and learn something and then go do something else. And I'm a big fan of that, that attitude and that lifestyle. So your latest book is how to take over the world, practical schemes and scientific solutions for an, for the unaspiring supervillain. How did you come to writing it? <laughs> That's a great question. A reasonable question too. Um, so I had written a previous book called How to Invent Everything. And the premise of that book was it was a repair guide for a time machine that in the future, there's time machines, they're rented out to people for tourism purposes. And this was a repair guide to kind of a cheaper car time machine, like a, like a cheap car rental place, maybe it breaks down. And so in this repair guide, the first thing it says is, you know, listen, time machines are the most complicated machines that huma humans have ever constructed. And you're not going to repair it if it's broken down in the past. Wherever you are, you're stuck. And so you can't get back the future. Let's bring the future back to you. And here's how you rebuild civilization. And what I, I liked about that premise was you had this fictional, I call it a candy coating around the nonfiction core. And so what it really is, is a guide to science and technology and understanding the world around us. And it is actually a guide to rebuilding civilization, but having this fictional motivation of we're trapped in the past and want to rebuild civilization from scratch really motivates learning about it. And I, I, I loved that experience and that sensation of reading. And so How to Take Over the World, my new book, is kind of a spiritual successor to that, where we have this fun motivation of we are an aspiring supervillain who wants to take over the world with comic book schemes. And then we take the premise completely seriously. And the fun there is, you know, looking at these comic book schemes of having a secret base and then taking that very seriously. So if you have a secret base, it needs to be hidden. You want it to be self-sufficient. You'll need to learn about uh, what food and water humans need and what happens if they get isolated for a long time. You'll need to know the caloric production capacity of a square meter of farmlands, you know, how much farm you need to support your hench people. And because we have this, this fictional wrapper, a question that might normally sound kind of dull, like how many calories can I expect to grow from a square meter of farmland becomes really interesting when you're trying to figure out how much room in this floating base in Antarctica do I need to dedicate towards growing food so that I can keep my seven to nine hench people happy and, and, and fed. So that was the that was the origin of thinking, what if I took this comic book stuff I love, this supervillain stuff that we always deal with in comic books and take it completely seriously and explore what would be required to pull them off here in the real world. Is it also a very important component of science fiction to have this uh, sort of really grounded background? Yeah, it's, it's what makes it real, I think. There's a lot of, of schemes in the book. And I'm when I talk about 
you know, as a secret base or, or cloning dinosaurs or controlling the weather or digging to the Earth's core to hold it hostage. All of these things sound fantastic and maybe a little goofy, maybe a little comic booky. But the more you dig into it and the more you figure out what would actually be required and how much it would cost and what your investment has to be, the more it becomes credible and, and real. And for me, that's the fun of it. And I, I do uh, caution people when I talk about the book, because I say this is this is super crime. This is these are heists that a supervillain would do, which means they're fun and charismatic. And the the difference I always draw is that you know in the real world where we have real crimes, we have stuff like robbing banks, but a supervillain's version is to steal the bank, <laughs> literally pick up the bank and get away with it, and figure out what you need to steal a bank becomes fun and and funny and interesting and the, the joy of doing it in this way is that if we do get really deep into some hard scientific concept i can always throw in a a, a supervillain joke and and play with the premise a bit so it, it never feels like homework it never feels dour it feels like a fun and interesting way to learn about the world around us all right so let's dive into the book so my first reaction was, of course, okay, I'm sold. Let's do it. <laughs> so where do we start? Yeah, where do you start? Uh, for me, I recommend you start with the supervillain basics. So that is the secret base like we've been mentioning and also starting your own country. Um, so for the secret base, you need something that is isolated and self-sufficient, which means it needs a power source, which means you need to look into... Uh, what the amount of people you need to sustain it and what'll happen when you isolate them. And normally when you're doing this kind of research, you get into questions of ethics pretty quick, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we want to know how long eight humans can survive together without going crazy, the obvious experiment is to lock eight humans in a room and see how long it takes till they go crazy. But that's not an ethical experiment to do. But uh, thankfully, this experiment has been done with the Biosphere 2 experiment in the 80s, where they built a self-sufficient area, a building, put farmland in it, put eight people in it, sealed the doors, and kept them in for two years. And what we learned from that experiment is uh, people get sad and weird when they're isolated. And this group of eight friends who went in who were so focused on the farming and the the air cycle and all this this scientific stuff they didn't worry about interpersonal conflicts because they were they've been friends for years and then mm. within months they had splintered into uh, two groups that hated each other and after they left the biosphere two years later some of them didn't talk to each other for for a decade so it shows us that you do need to uh, care a little bit about the people when you're locking them in a room, have some support structures for them to prevent them from getting sad and weird and breaking off into little cliques and spitting in each other's faces and stuff like that. Good to know if you're looking to hire hench people for your, for your secret base. And this also has uh, quite real world implications, especially when we think about traveling to other planets, say. Yeah, uh, NASA's done some some work into this themselves. They've done these uh, fake missions to Mars where they lock candidates effectively in a room. They can still go outside in simulated spacesuits and allow them to see what it would be like to live on a, on a Martian colony for years. And in the most recent one, uh, they again broke off into groups a little bit and... The saddest anecdote to come from that was that two of the people involved actually started dating, and it's really sweet. And then the second they could leave the compound, they stopped dating because their dating pool had expanded beyond seven other people at most. So there, there definitely is value in it, and I think it's something that we tend to forget. We get so excited about the, the science and technology of spaceships and traveling to other worlds, and we don't really think about what it will be like to sit next to a small group of people and... Their, their personalities becoming quirks, becoming irritants, becoming something that you absolutely hate just through overexposure and having no other option but to talk to these people. 
it's fascinating. The same thing happens with bases in Antarctica where you have ice. Whenever people get isolated, there's always a danger of them becoming uh, weird and resentful. And this is so interesting because when you read about it, you start thinking about yourself, how I will be in, uh, will be reacting to these kinds of conditions. Yeah, I think that's the fun of, of something like this, where we're exploring the science and technology behind it. But because we have this, this fictional premise, you start putting yourself in those shoes and how would I react and what would it be like to be isolated with my best friend for so long and would we actually still be best friends at the end of it it's hard to say for sure because everyone i think goes in confident no one thinks yeah i'm definitely gonna gonna go off the deep end here but it's it's very very stressful um there's this famous quote i'm forget the uh gentleman's name now but a soviet cosmonaut who spent a long time with one other person in space and when he got back he uh quoted O. Henry in his diary talking about if you put two people in a small room for too long, then you have all the necessary conditions for murder. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, yeah, they have to be very careful. <laughs> How big is the room? <laughs> so why would you want to build your own country? So... Having your own country is sort of the beginning of where we start when we put ourselves in the supervillain mindset, right? We think of the great supervillains, we think of people like Dr. Doom, and they, they have their own country. And the reason it's so attractive is that here's a bunch of people who are basically kind of your parents, kind of treating you like a baby. They have to do what you want. You're in charge. Your every whim is catered to. It's this uh, reality we all had as babies, but now as an adult, where what if everyone had to listen to me? What if I could be this this perfect dictator in charge of a country? And the fantasy of it is really appealing, right? Like we we all think in in democratic societies that democracy is great, but there's this imagination of you know if I was in charge, I could do it better. If people would just listen to me, and you start to think, well, why can't there be a benevolent dictator. We haven't had a great track record, but surely the right person in charge could make all the right choices and just be this this perfect leader. And it's a it's a fun fantasy, but I the second you start to evaluate it critically, you realize that because humans are humans and because humans experience greed and because any leader has to keep their supporters happy whether it's in a dictatorship or democracy, you can't have this perfect dictator because they're always going to be compromised. You, If you're in a democracy, you have to make sure that your voters are happy. You have to build them schools and libraries and roads and hospitals. Otherwise, they won't vote for you again and you lose your power. If you're in a dictatorship, you have to keep your supporters happy, the, the people in charge of the military and those who allow you to keep power have to constantly be convinced that their lives are better with you in charge than without it. And in either case, even in this absolute dictatorship position, you're still compromised. You can't pursue this whatever idealized agenda you have because you have to keep your supporters happy. And it's kind of uh, it's one of the most bleakest parts of the book where I'm making this argument that there can never be a perfect dictator because of the inherent compromises in any sort of power structure. But... I think it's interesting to explore and to know and to even in your fantasy of being this super villainous dictator with his or her own country, you're still beholden to others. And it sort of gets to the the subtext of the book where, yes, you know, this is a book about taking over the world and the science and tech behind it. And yes, this is a book about uh, comic book schemes in real life. But if you look at it closely, it's kind of a book arguing that we're all in this together and we need to work together to solve the issues of the world at that that surround us and one of the best ways to do that is to to learn about it to understand it and to approach it in this uh reasonable informed and empathic way so it's a it's a neat little trick where it it is a book <laughs> called how to take about the world and i love the image of 
people casually reading a book called how to take over the world on mm-hmm. a, on a bus or a train or on their bookshelves. But the message of it, I think is we're all in this together and we need to work on our problems together. No, oh, absolutely. I love the cover work as well. It's great. <laughs> I was so pleased with that cover. It's got a, a super villain face on this super normal looking kind of professor in a schoolroom. So there have been quite a few attempts, especially by libertarians, I think, to build their own countries, but they mm. seem to all have failed. Why would that be? Yeah, so if you want to actually start your own country, you have a couple challenges. And one of the biggest ones is that Earth is a finite place and countries are zero sum. If you're going to expand your country, someone else is going to lose. And in the past, uh, we could you could argue that you're going out to, to find new lands that no one has seen before. But satellite imagery of the planet has confirmed there are no more new lands. And even if you're hoping that maybe a volcano in the ocean will make new lands, international law says those go to the country that is closest to them. And people have tried various ways to get around that. They've tried to uh, buy land from other countries. It's never worked. They've tried to simply declare independence. And you have... Examples of this, uh, sea land is one of them. It's a, an old military platform off the coast of England where this guy showed up with a pirate radio station and said, this is an independent country. And what these hmm. micronations rely upon is the parent country not taking them seriously, right? Like if I declare I am now independent from Canada, the Prime Minister of Canada isn't going to call me up and say, hey, Ryan, what are you doing? He's going to ignore me. And if I stop paying my taxes, eventually they'll get me in trouble, but not for a couple of years. And so you can kind of get into this mindset that you think, oh, it worked. I am a separate nation. I'll start issuing stamps and passports and stuff. And it works for a while, but it's not actually a country. You're just a theme park effectively at that point. The only other option is to find land that is unclaimed. And there's a a small there's various areas of earth that that are unclaimed where no country lays official claim to it so my proposal in the book if you are looking to start your own country you have to play the long game and what is involved is starting a research base in antarctica where all land claims are frozen by treaty but those treaties aren't indefinite and one is scheduled to thaw in about 20 years Mm -hmm. so when that happens if you have built a actual scientific research base in Antarctica, you have a reasonable claim to the land. And the best part about it is like, you don't have to show up saying, hey, I'm a supervillain, come take over. All you have to do is live in Antarctica and do research for 20 years, and you end up with this more reasonable claim to land. So it's, it's, it's fun and it's interesting, but it is a very zero sum sort of circumstance. You can't start a new country without taking land away from anyone else. And generally, most countries are very hostile to someone trying to take their land away. Yeah, I wonder why. Yeah, <laughs> it seems pretty, it's not much of a mystery, yeah. Yeah, for me, it would be, in order to build your own country, make sure that you've got enough people who know how to fix sewage. <laughs> Otherwise, that's it. Yeah, the... the the fantasy of it is always, it'll be great. And you never think about, okay, so who's going to build the sewage lines? Who's going to handle all the, the, the boring parts of nation building and living in a place that I don't want to do myself? Hmm. Okay, so let's look at some of the other super duper tech that we could use to take over the world. And you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. about dinosaurs. So how will we go about <laughs> creating one and cloning one? Yes, this is one of uh, my favorite chapters in the book. One of my favorite zany schemes, super villainous schemes, I should say, because every super villain wants to make a good entrance. And it seems inarguable that the best entrance you can make is on the back of a dinosaur. So let's clone dinosaurs to ride around on and it's a fantasy that everyone gets right away and the problems with it also seem kind of insurmountable right like if you 
want to clone a dinosaur, you need some dinosaur DNA, and DNA has a half-life of about 520 years, which means that any viable DNA, even inside a mosquito trapped in amber, uh, likely decayed into nothingness millions of years ago. Like there's, there's very little hope of ever finding viable dinosaur DNA. And so this would seem to be the end of the dream for cloning dinosaurs. But there are people working on this with a really interesting point of view. And that what they're saying is, hey, dinosaurs didn't go completely extinct. Some of them survived and evolved into birds. And what if we could take these birds and alter their developmental gene expression to bring back more dinosaur-like traits? So if we have a chicken and we could get it while it's developing to, instead of growing a beak, to grow a mouth with teeth, a dinosaur-like snout, that's closer to a dinosaur. What if we got it so instead of growing wings, it grew arms? What if instead of having this round butt of a chicken, we had it grow a tail? Then you end up with an animal that is not a dinosaur, but it is very close to looking like a dinosaur and it might behave like a dinosaur and even in jurassic park the the world of fiction those dinosaurs weren't pure dinosaurs either they had to inject frog dna to fill in the blanks so it's it seems like a really reasonable compromise and there are people working on this that the challenge is that we don't know if all these pieces will fit together and we don't know if it's if it's going to be possible like if you grow a chicken with arms instead of wings can the brain handle that or is that is that not going to function so it's it's a really interesting way to explore genetics and the benefit in terms of like the jurassic park warning is that these are all done by altering the genetic development of the animal but not its dna and so if you did build a chickenosaurus and it escaped the park and bred it would just produce more chickens. You wouldn't end up with more dinosaurs, which is always a good safety measure. And if you do produce a chickenosaurus, you've got this tiny chicken-sized dinosaur, do the same thing on an ostrich, and you've got this, this rideable beast that possibly could become something very dinosaur-like. And it's great because if it doesn't work out, you've still done some really good science. And if it does work out, you know, yes, it's not technically a dinosaur, but that distinction is going to seem pretty minuscule when you are riding on it and it is screeching and terrifying all those that it encounters. Okay, so let's imagine that we have built a chickenosaurus. I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what do we need to do to its environment? For example, do we also need to engineer our atmosphere to contain higher levels of oxygen for them to survive? Yeah, there's a lot of open questions. One of the most interesting one, I think, is when you look at this process, which is generally called de-extinction, and people are trying it not just for dinosaurs, there's people trying to convert uh, elephants into extinct woolly mammoths. Can we bring back uh, the dodo by looking at other closely related birds? All of these processes seem to give us this really beautiful chance to correct a mistake, right? For all the species that humanity has forced to go extinct, maybe we can undo it once or twice or three times and and correct that mistake. And it's really appealing, but the the issue is that there is more to an animal, like you say, than just its DNA, just its genetics. Um, there's the world around it. There's the environment around it. There's even the culture around it, right? Like birds teach each other songs. The parents teach songs to their kids. Elephants uh, have, a, have a culture between tribes of elephants. And when you make an animal go extinct, that culture also goes extinct. So even if we could bring back woolly mammoths or, or the dodo or dinosaurs with these chickenosauruses, we still can't bring back the animals as they were because that, that culture and that environment, the world they lived in is gone. It no longer exists. The advantage in in dinosaur cases is, of course, uh, nobody can tell you what a dinosaur culture looked like, so no one can prove that you're wrong, (laughs) which is always nice. Now I feel sad for a lonely chickenosaurus. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the arguments against it, is that, 
you know, if we're we're playing playing God here, which is always a good thing to do as a supervillain, is this unfair to the animal? Like, if we pull it off and yeah. produce this chicken, Asaurus, would that be animal cruelty? And my response to that is, I don't think so. This seems to me like it would be the most famous, charismatic, well cared for animal on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and we have this this we've already done it with dogs. Like, you look at the the way a dog has been transformed from wolves. And then you look at some of the more extreme examples of selective breeding, like pugs, where, yes, they have these artificially short noses and some of them have trouble breathing, but we care for them. Like, we owe them a duty of care having produced them. And so I feel like if we did make chickenosauruses, they would be incredibly well cared for <laughs> because who wouldn't want to see this chicken dinosaur and feed it treats and tell it it's a good boy or a good girl? <laughs> Yeah, that's reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what would the time travel serve our supervillain in the world domination scheme? <laughs> Great question. There is a chapter on time travel in the book, and this is a book of science. And so at present, it is a short chapter, and it says something to the effect of, Despite all my efforts, I've only ever been able to travel through time forwards and only at the rate of one second per second relative to local time. But if that ever changes, I have sworn a holy vow to go back in time and alter the manuscript of the book before it reaches press. So everyone's book is guaranteed to update the second that I either invent time travel or gain access to a time machine. So it is a future ready book. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be stuck in some kind of loop, though? I mean, what you have there is the, the grandfather paradox, right? Mm -hmm. Where a technology gets invented, I take it back and give it to myself. And then no one ever, ever invents the technology in the first place. It's like the universe invented the technology. And some might say the fact these paradoxes could exist is proof that time travel isn't possible. Some might say, like Stephen Hawking did, the greatest proof that time travel isn't possible is that we're not being visited by tourists from the future. I say in response to that, who says we're that interesting? Maybe they're visiting asteroids hitting dinosaur times or even just visiting dinosaurs or visiting the future. Hmm. So there's a tiny crack open that I that I leave open just in case in the book. Oh, yeah, for sure. And perhaps we're just not able to comprehend it with our current brain, basically. And we can go back and maybe tweak a little bit so we are able to comprehend these big questions. Yeah, I mean... I feel like, and I know this, I have some physicist friends and it drives them crazy because they get emails from strangers saying, hey, I have figured out time travel and nobody believes me. And they are, they are thinking, yes, I also do not believe you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, I feel like if it were invented, uh, it would be the greatest invention ever made because it, it solves all your problems, right? The second you have a time machine... If there's any problem you can't solve, you can simply go to the future and see how they solved it and bring that answer back with you. So in How to Invent Everything, that's one of the problems I encountered while writing it, where it is a repair guide for a time machine ostensibly written in the future, which means all the historical mysteries we have are solved. There are no mysteries in the future when you have time travel. So I kind of had to write around this perfect utopia that existed in the premise of the book, but didn't exist in in the real world in which I was writing it. So stuff we didn't know that's still a historical mystery for us. I had to do things like have the author say, oh, of course, you know, this was a mystery for a long time. But once we had time machines, we could discover what the answer was. And it's so obvious now that everyone knows it. So it's not worth repeating here. Hmm. And then bringing us to a bit more mundane reality then. So would the something like taking very specific notes and leaving everything very, very clear for the future generations, you know, in terms of uh, sort of taking the record of uh, the biodiversity and all the historical events will allow our future generations to travel back in time, basically. Yeah. And there are people uh, trying to do that with things like seed banks, with things like uh, frozen zoos, which are uh, cryogenically frozen gametes from animals, some of which have, have now gone extinct. They're kind of 
I see them as important, but also in a way they're, they're wishful thinking because they're trying to preserve information across these huge swaths of time. And humans are not particularly good at, at preserving information across huge swaths of time. If we look at some of the oldest artifacts we have, they are things that didn't reach our present era because they passed through countless generations of archivists and preservationists intent on preserving these these artifacts for thousands of years they got to us because they were lost or discarded and got to get out of the way of history <laughs> for thousands of years and then we found them again and that's one of the i think most telling lessons that you can look at in history is that we as a species aren't particularly good at keeping things around because there's always a use for it. Um, a lot of the statues that we know of from Greek and Roman times are the stone ones because there were metal ones and they were gorgeous, but anything made of, of bronze, for example, has to be as valued by the people looking at it in its statue formation more than anything else for the entire expanse of time. <laughs> so... If you build a bronze statue, it could be beautiful, but it has to be more valued as a statue than it could be if you melted it down for a bull or maybe a sword or a shield or anything more productive at that point in time. And that's generally not the case. So there is a chapter in the book about ensuring you're never forgotten, ensuring that the world never forgets your name as a supervillain, that the greatest threat you face after taking over the world is that people might one day forget about you. Hmm. And we look at doing it for one year and 10 years and 100 years and 1,000 years, all the way up to <laughs> the heat death of the universe. And it's fun going through that because you have to start taking these greater and greater steps to ensure that something survives across that amount of time. And one of the problems you run into very quickly is that language changes and that we don't have any example of a language that has lasted for more than 10,000 years, mm. which means if you want to talk to people in, in deeper future, you can't rely on them understanding the words you write. You can, you can try to hedge your bets by using common words where their, their meaning doesn't change over time. And linguists have studied this. And there's, there's words that are common and used a lot like mountain or man or woman or teeth, simple, usually single syllable words that get used all the time. They have a meaning that tends to be more specific. Well, Longer words, more novel words can change meaning rather quickly. If you look at the word computer in the 40s, that was a, someone, generally a woman, who ran computations for them for you. And then we invented electronic computers and the meaning completely changed <laughs> within, within living memory. In the space of one generation, what a computer was changes. And so because language evolves, because we can't rely on it being understood, we have to start looking at non-linguistic ways of communicating with the future. If you, want to, if you want to send a message that far into time. And one of the challenges is that if you can't rely on language, it gets very hard to say things specifically. You can, you can get across rough ideas with pictures, but even if you, if you fall back to comics, do you read it right to left or left to right? That's a cultural choice. One of the things that uh, I recommend, which was taken from the United States government, did a study on long-term messaging for nuclear waste. They were concerned that if we bury nuclear waste, we wanted to tell people in the future not to drink the water here. How do we get that across? And one of the things they landed on was, yes, language changes, and yes, language is not reliable, but what doesn't change? What, what can we rely on not to change for a long period of time? And... One of the things is human faces. Uh, babies smile when they're happy and frown when they're sad across cultures and across time as far as we can tell. So at the very least, a happy face and a frowny face might be intelligible 10,000, 100,000 years from now, but that's no guarantee. And once you get past 100,000 years to a million years in the future... That's long enough for evolution to have had an effect. Maybe we won't smile anymore. Maybe smile means something else. So once you get into like deeper areas of time, the fact that you're actually sending a message that far into time is kind of remarkable on, on its own and 
the message itself on its own is simply that you were here and that you existed and that you managed to communicate this far ahead into the future. Yes, that is very prescient, especially with the nuclear waste burial sites. And what would be your suggestion? Maybe construct some kind of really photorealistic relief on uh, the mountain uh, side, for example, like like a really realistic photo, you know, of a person healthy and then touching something and basically being very, very unhealthy. Yeah, that's actually very close to what um, the U.S. government considered was what if we showed an image of someone being happy and healthy and then they drink this container of nuclear waste and then they are throwing up and looking sad and unhealthy. Mm. Surely that will get the message across. But if you read that sequence of images in the opposite direction, you have someone who is sick and unhappy who drinks this nuclear water and now is happy and healthy. (laughs) The exact opposite of what you want if you read in the wrong order. So they've tried other things too, where maybe we can uh, build a religion around this. If we can build this idea that anyone who goes here dies and make it religious, then that religion might survive 10,000 years and keep warning people. And the issue you have there is that it's based on a lie. <laughs> like There is no angry God ready to punch people who trespass here. And the second someone does it and doesn't die, they think the whole thing is fake. And that's the, the danger with nuclear waste is that you can get a fatal amount of radiation contamination and not die from cancer for 20 years. And it's very hard to make that connection from someone getting sick 20 years in the future to what they did 20 years ago, which is why you want this message there in the first place. Okay, so, so far, I'm a little bit skeptical whether we can use any of those methods that for sure will allow us to be, you know, dominant over the world. So what if we Mm -hmm. have a person who will live forever? So if you were immortal, maybe you would be somebody who, you know, will warn the future societies. But if you wanted to take over the world, why would you want to be immortal? Right. So that's uh, one of the last chapters in the book is how to become immortal and literally live forever. And there are a ton of books that I read about immortality telling you that it is just around the corner And the first immortal person might already be alive today, meaning that right now they're mortal, but we'll figure out how to make them immortal, and then they'll be one of the first immortal people. And people have looked at different ways to do this, but I feel like if you look at it scientifically and skeptically, a lot of them kind of fall apart. One of the earliest ones is cryonics, right, where you you die and you freeze your brain or your body, and then in the future when they've cured whatever disease you've died from, They thaw you out and congratulations, now you get to live forever. But that's wild. (laughs) That's not immortality. That is dying and hoping that in the future they undie you. And worse, they have to be able to cure not just being frozen for a couple hundred years, but also being so infected by a disease that you die from it. (laughs) And if you cut off your head and just preserve your head, they have to cure being a disembodied head. Like this is... This is not a recipe for immortality. This is a recipe to hope that in the future, someone will resurrect you. And it might sound like, you know, okay, Ryan, you sound skeptical on this, but how do you know it can't work? Maybe it's fine. And amazingly, we have an example of this from the past where a group of people wanted to live forever. And to do this, they relied on their descendants to keep them going in a certain way. And with cryonics, you need liquid nitrogen. But there's a process called chantry in the Catholic Church around a thousand years ago Mm. where the idea was when you died, you could get into heaven if you were good, but you'd have a better chance of getting into heaven if people would sing your praises. And so people would die and give all this money to the church to pay for a priest to sing about how great you were Mm. for a week or a month or a year. And that evolved into the medieval process of perpetual chantry, where you leave land to the church and the money from that land, the rent from that land, pays indefinitely for someone to sing for your immortal soul. So this is, the, this is very close to cryonics, where you die, you want the people living to do this thing for you on an indefinite basis to ensure that you can live forever. And better than cryonics it didn't need liquid nitrogen you didn't need to preserve a body all this stuff could go wrong and it was all you needed for someone to do was to occasionally pray and sing 
and it still lasted less than 400 years. And there reached a point where the king of England decided, you know what, I would much rather take this money and spend it on something that the living could use mm. than to pray for the immortal soul of someone who died 400 years ago. And we're not a planet that is especially low on people. We have 7 billion of them right now. The idea that we should continue spending resources on someone who is already dead, and as time goes on, more and more forgotten and irrelevant, doesn't seem to me to be especially plausible. It seems to me like this is these are the acts of someone who is unreasonably optimistic about how much their descendants will care about their wishes. <laughs> that was exactly my question. So, Even if we reach it, who would want to resurrect you? <laughs> I mean, yeah, and so people think, okay, well, what if I upload my brain to a computer? That that'll solve the problem. But there's still resources involved, and if you somehow upload your consciousness to a computer and we don't know how to test for that because we don't know what consciousness is but assuming we do then who is going to run you over another program and if there are a bunch of people to run then why why should they choose you well it would be if you're entertaining or you have value maybe you give really good stock advice whatever this is you're now working for them <laughs> unpaid and if they don't like what you're doing they can shut you down that doesn't sound like immortality to me that sounds like indentured servitude for eternity until you're deleted or forgotten so i'm not very bullish on those forms of immortality but the closest i see to being credible plausible is there is a um researcher dr aubrey de gray who is working on aging and his big idea is we don't actually know exactly what aging is or why it happens. Maybe it's rusting oxidization inside the body. Maybe it's the fact that we're just evolved to age. Like we don't know what it is. We don't know how to stop it. But what if we didn't have to? What if instead of treating the disease of aging, we just treated the symptoms? So look for everything that aging does, the oxidization, the slowing down, the stiffening tissues. And if we could correct them all, then we could cure aging and then not die. We'd still be vulnerable to, to accidents, but we wouldn't die simply from being alive for too long. And it's a really appealing thing, right? Because if you look at aging from sort of a first principles form of view, it seems crazy. Like we all are here because we built ourselves up from two cells over the course of nine months and produced a fully functional human body, which is amazing. And somehow we're supposed to believe that it's the maintenance of that body that does us in. Like we can build a human being from scratch in nine months, but after 80 to 100 years of maintenance, it just falls apart and there's nothing we can do. It seems like a mistake <laughs> and it seems like we should be able to correct that. So Dr. DeGray has proposed uh, different solutions for these different uh, aging things that happen in the body and believes that if we could cure them all, we could produce an immortal person. And on the individual level, it's super appealing, right? Like who, who wants to live forever? Who doesn't want to die? Sounds great. But the danger I see uh, from a supervillain point of view is that no matter what these are, no matter what intervention this is, these are medical interventions. These are changing the body body of an existing person. And if it is a medical intervention, then it costs money, which means it's something that some people can have and some people don't. And now you've got this almost cartoonish dystopia where the rich can live forever and the poor die. Mm. And that is clearly, I think, bad for society, bad for civilization, bad for the earth. But here's a supervillain twist because... If you could do all this stuff and keep it a secret and only make yourself immortal, then all those civilization downsides go away mm -hmm. because you're not changing the nature of human society. You're, you're just doing a fun thing where you never die. So this is what I like to call enlightened supervillainy, where you're saving the world by helping only yourself, <laughs> by becoming immortal and only making yourself become immortal. Then you have all the time you want to to live and, and and learn and study things more than any other human can study in the history of the planet, history of the universe. And this 
extended life, this long life is yours to keep for as long as you can hold your tongue, for as long as you can keep it a secret for the, the sake of everyone else. And I think that's the fun part of approaching these sort of subjects as a supervillain, where you can look at the actual science behind aging and trying to avoid it and decide, you know what, the most ethical thing to do here is for only me to become immortal and to keep it a secret from everyone else for the sake of the planet. So basically become a vampire. <laughs> yeah, but like vampires get a bad rap. This is a... Uh, <laughs> this is a non-blood-sucking associate. Fair enough. All right, so we've been looking at this from the point of supervillain, from a point of view of supervillain. Mm -hmm. So you already touched up on it in the beginning. So what if we had somebody who wanted to take over the world, but actually was quite quite good, you know, with a very good intentions? Is it possible? Yeah, this is... This is what I was talking about before with the power corrupting, the necessary to keep your supporters happy. But even if even if that wasn't true, this is where I'm going to argue in favor of death. Because even if you had a perfect person who could be this perfect dictator, who could take over the world and run everything perfectly, uh, they're going to die. And... When they die, they're going to have to pass it off to a trusted lieutenant or their children or whatever. And there's no guarantee that that, that person is going to do good on the level that they did. Mm. So death here, I believe, acts as kind of like a safety valve, right? Like we, we live in a world where no matter how bad someone is, they too are going to die. And that's great <laughs> because... I'd rather live in a world in which your your Adolf Hitler and your Genghis Khan are people who died and they're gone and they're not still with us because no matter how bad things can get, they're they're still going to die. And I think that is a greater benefit than the benefit we have with this hypothetical perfect person who always makes the best decisions sticking around indefinitely because them doing that and never getting corrupted and still being good for all of human history seems a lot less likely than the tangible benefit we get of no matter how much power you amass and how much money you take from the rest of other humans, mm. you're still going to die like the rest of us. <laughs> it's a safety valve on civilization, I think. Which is the most super villainous thing I can say <laughs> is sitting here and talking to you and argue about death and be like, yes, it's good because it kills people. <laughs> No, but that's completely, completely true. Absolutely. That's uh, how the generational change happens, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting because there's been studies on people over time. And as we get older, we tend to be less open to, to new ideas. We feel like we figured it out, right? And in our 20s, we're questioning everything. And in our 60s, mm -hmm. we feel like we have questioned everything and we've landed on these answers and these answers are fine. And you see that in, in science where a lot of, not a lot, but it's more likely that an older person in science will be uh, less, maybe the words interested, able to consider a revolutionary view than someone who is younger because they're not committed. There's no investment. They haven't spent 40 years of their lives deep into this other theory, believing it, trying to prove it, and having to admit that it's wrong. So it's it's a... What death gives us is a world in which the ideals of the young can still challenge the ideas of the old. And without it, we get into this, this calc where things don't change because people don't die. Mm. So then taking this uh, sort of uh, idea of benevolent um, superhero who would control over the world, uh, control the world, could we leverage mm -hmm. their powers for a, limited time period, for example, to solve big issues that require global participation, like climate crisis or nuclear de-weaponization or stuff like this. Yeah, I mean, there's that's the story of, of Julius Caesar, right, where he was given temporary powers to solve a short-term crisis and then decided to keep them, <laughs> didn't give them up. So as a, as a human, I don't see that as being likely for succeeding long term. But 
as a supervillain, you'd absolutely want to, to gain those powers. And there are situations in which one person acting as a dictator could could solve those issues. Um, one of the most interesting ones is climate change, where we are in a situation in which there's rising CO2 in the atmosphere that is causing the Earth's climate to change, and it would be great if we could solve that. And one of the ways you could put a Band-Aid on it is through a process called geoengineering, where the basic idea is the planet is getting warmer. So what if we put a haze in the atmosphere that reflected sunlight, a white haze, so less sunlight reaches the Earth, which would cool it down? And this is what happens when we have major volcanic eruptions. They put uh, sulfur dioxide into the air, and that cools the, the climate of the planet. If we could do this artificially, we could mitigate some of the effects of climate change and bring global temperatures back to where they were. And in theory, sure, yeah, this sounds great. Let's let's spray some sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere and do it. And it's remarkably achievable for the cost of about $7 billion for retrofitting some planes to do a simultaneous launch worldwide. You could spray enough sulfur dioxide to reduce the atmosphere, global temperatures, to pre-industrial levels and keep them there for a year. You need to keep putting this new sulfur dioxide in, but it brings the temperatures back to where they were. And this feels on the surface like, great, you know, this this sounds like a supervillain plot to save the world. This is great. I love it. But the issues you encounter get very thorny very quick. And one of the biggest ones is that by changing the global climate, assuming it works, so this is, this is a global experiment that's never been done, but if it works, you have removed what we now call acts of god from the planet right if a tornado strikes somewhere we can't we can't blame anyone because no one created the tornado but if you as an individual or even as a country have altered the climate through geoengineering then there's a pretty credible case to be made that if a tornado strikes somewhere new they never struck before it's your fault you did this you're culpable Mm. and that sounds like a recipe to war for me (laughs) now you're being blamed for any any bad things that happen. And of course, it's not a total solution. It doesn't solve the issues of ocean acidification. It just deals with temperatures. But it's this interesting thing to explore because even though it might do it at the climate level, there's still that pesky matter of human nature where we're going to be upset if something happens and we're going to have arguments of if there is to be a global thermostat controlled by someone, who's to say you get to control it? Why can't I control it? If we're making my country more livable at the cost of cooling down beyond reasonable ranges somewhere else, who's deciding if that's right? We, we don't have a, a very good track record mm-hmm. <laughs> of deciding those sorts of arguments peacefully. So short term, great, solves the issue of climate change long term sounds like we're headed towards a world war (laughs) so your book is but it's shockingly achievable yeah sorry yeah yeah, go on i'm just saying it's it's shockingly achievable it's it's affordable for a billionaire there are many people on the earth who could afford to do it and it was the one chapter in the book where i put um more disclaimers than most being like Please don't do this. There's a lot of downsides. Think it through. Yeah, your book actually contains the highest density of disclaimers and warnings I ever encountered, <laughs> even more than on my prescription meds. So why? <laughs> <laughs> why the disclaimers? Um, part of it is is legal, um, but part of it is I'm operating in this space where it is a book called How to Take Over the World, and it's a guide to supervillains. But at its heart, it's a guide to to science and technology. And I want to make it clear that Mm -hmm. I think it's most likely, if we are to solve the problems we face, that we will solve them by working together. We will solve them not by one person putting on a cool costume and doing it on their own. And so the disclaimers are a way to sort of remind the reader that, yeah, we're, we're having fun here and we're exploring the world through the eyes of a supervillain, but I don't want you, and yes, you know, I'm giving you costs and I'm figuring out all the work and the logistics and the, the math required, but I don't want you to <laughs> mm. do these things without 
the consensus of the rest of humanity. Let's do it together. Let's not do it um, as a as a one person doing it all on their own. So usually I ask my guests uh, the question about their sort of favorite discoveries when they were researching their books. But in your case, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask, what was the most boring thing that you found <laughs> that you really looked into the thing? It's like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And then it's like, mm, nah. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I have one for you too. I looked into the supervillain plot of throwing your enemies into the sun because what a great thing to imagine just throwing your enemies into the sun problem solved and the reason that's not in the book is because it's actually too easy <laughs> it's surprisingly easy so your model here is nasa's uh, parker's solar probe and that was a probe launched with existing technology that is designed to orbit the sun and take readings so we can learn more about the sun and it's working great and what it does is it uses flybys of the planet Venus to slow it down. So every time it flies by Venus, it gets slower and slower and slower, which gets it closer and closer and closer to the sun. And you can adapt that for yourself. The Parker Solar Space Probe is easily big enough to contain two people. So it's, it's <laughs> you can stuff your enemies in there. Hmm. And stuff NASA has to worry about, like a solar flare destroying the probe, doesn't bother us because we want our enemies to get thrown into the sun. And at the end of the day, uh, there wasn't actually enough really interesting science, technology ideas to talk about there to make it fit with the book. It was just too easy and too affordable. You're looking at about $800 million to throw two people into the sun. And that's, you know, that's just the cost of, I think it's 44,000 private helicopters or... 250,000 years of piano lessons for that price alone <laughs> you can throw people into the sun so it was it wasn't boring but it was shocking how pedestrian it was how achievable it was I thought it would be hard and interesting and it was easy and cheap if you have 800 million dollars lying around so relatively cheap yeah, perhaps it also doesn't have the pizzazz of having your enemy's head turned off by a newly freshly minted chickenosaurus. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's still, there's a certain satisfaction in seeing a rocket go off with your enemies above it and being like, that's one problem solved forever, but not enough to make the cut in the book, unfortunately. All right. So what's your weapon of choice then? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm going to give you the, uh, the sincere answer and say that it's words. I feel like it's the best tool we have for understanding. And yes, words are, are clumsy and misunderstandable and so slippery. But without them, we are trapped in our bodies. And without them... Any idea we have can't survive the death of the host, our own death. But with language, we can have an idea and have it outlive us. That's by telling other people or by writing it down. And books, especially the written word, allows ideas to last longer than the person who had them. Or even if the whole civilization dies, their ideas can still survive. We have this with the deciphering of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. They're gone, but we still know what they thought because they wrote their thoughts down. So... That to me, and I know it's cliche to say words are, are powerful, but I think they are the most powerful thing humans have. The best technology humans ever invented was language and written language, mm, in my yeah. opinion. And I'm using language to tell you this, which sort of argues for it in the first case. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? I wish I had a great answer for you. I'd love to do another nonfiction book like How to Take Over the World or How to Invent Everything, but I'm not sure what the fictional wrapper is yet. It's something I'm trying to think about and figure out. But in the meantime, I've been writing a lot of comic books. I uh, just the other year put out a graphic novel adaptation. <clears throat> Pardon me. I just last year put out a graphic novel adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five with Albert Montes on art and... That is very far from a guide of how to take over the world, but it still uh, feels 
like me. It it feels like a project I like to do. I'm in this lucky position where I can choose to do different projects that are weird and maybe don't have a straight line between them. And lucky enough that uh, an audience has shown up to read them. So I can't tell you what the next book is, but I can promise you it's going to be interesting and weird and fun and funny, hopefully all at the same time. Oh, looking forward to that. Yeah. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Sure. If you're curious about how to take over the world, you can go to supervillainbook.com and there's all there's a free chapter you can read there and all sorts of links to buy it. And if you're curious about this voice you've heard in your ears for the past hour, uh, my name is Ryan North and I have a website at ryannorth.ca that has links to all my books and stuff you can read online and pictures of my dog. It's a pretty good spot for all your Ryan North needs. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a sincere pleasure. Thank you for such thoughtful questions and for walking us through how to take over the world. (laughs) 